Sean, welcome back. Hey, Jeff. Good to see you again. Good to see you, too. This is the first time meeting you in person, I think? Yeah, I think the first time was through phone as well. Okay, and <laughs> yeah. we've done two previous interviews, I think? Yeah, I think one with Docker and one before we changed the name to Magic. Right, okay. For the, yeah, the Fortmatic company. I want to talk about all that. First, I want to ask you, we're in San Francisco. I am finding, as I come out of the pandemic, that I actually still like this city. I forgot for a year that I like the city. How are you feeling? Are you, like coming out of the pandemic, what's your? Give me the um, entrepreneurial zeitgeist uh-huh. of Sean Lee. <laughs> well, so before I moved to the city, I was in San Mateo, and during the pandemic, um, I realized I was where I needed to be. <laughs> I actually really like uh, San Mateo. I'm actually moving back next month. But yeah, uh, when I started the company, we moved to SF to be closer with, with my co-founders. And then, you know, now that the company has grown and then there's more of a remote cadence being built uh, around the company. So everybody is just remote now. So I can live wherever I need to be. And you're back in San Mateo? It will be next month. Great. So do you think there is an exodus, an entrepreneurial exodus from San Francisco or has it been overstated? I think I have my own perspective <laughs> around it. I don't think there's like an exodus. I don't think people are fleeing here because I, I believe Silicon Valley is really unique. You know, it is the only place with, you know, art, uh, tech, spirituality. It's got really, really nice weather. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the place with all of that combined. And I think if anything, there's a really good chance that more inspired things will come out of Silicon Valley. Yeah, I'm feeling the same way. I'm feeling definitely the energy in a way that you don't get in remote. You, I didn't get for the last year. Did you miss that energy? Did you f- kind of forget what made San Francisco San Francisco? So I'm personally pretty new to San Francisco because I was only here for around two years. And that two years is all for my company. So I didn't really get much time to explore wow, okay. besides sort of like the downtown area, uh, kind of the Westfield Mall. Uh, area. Besides there, I didn't explore as much. Uh, I do enjoy Golden Gate Park and uh, Ocean Beach sort of on the on the west side of it. Gotcha. Well, the reason I wanted to bring you on, you're the second person I'm doing a video interview with, is I like your entrepreneurial taste. So if I look at the three products that I've seen you build, first with what was your pre-Docker company called? Uh, it's a Kitematic. Kitematic. So mm-hmm. Kitematic was like, uh, the way I think about that company is, if you take Docker in its early days, <clears throat> and then you add much better UX to it, mm-hmm. that's what you get with Kitematic. <laughs> yes. And if you think about Docker, Docker is one of the most developer-friendly products in in existence. Then you were attempting to do something similar with Fortmatic, which was kind of like, the way I understood your vision for that company was very UX-friendly developer APIs for crypto-related activities, yes. which is really appealing to me as a developer. So I'm like a longtime fan of Heroku. I think Heroku was like transformative. Stripe, obviously. These, these, these things in developer UX that were milestones. And I see you as somebody who's really capable of thinking that way. And then now where you're at with Magic, which we'll, we'll dive into pretty deeply, you're trying to introduce an easy way to build 
the kind of passwordless authentication that some people get from the first thing that comes to mind, by the way, Slack. Is that is that right? That's that's they're the kind of the first people to really productize that. Right. Slack and Medium, I would say, are sort of pioneers in using Magic Link as login. Right. Okay. So before we get to Magic, actually, do I understand your ethos correctly as a product developer? Well, as a product, that makes sense. So we make um, sort of passwordless login, basically plug and play. You know, super easy for developers to just put it in their application. And, you know, it works really well with modern tech stack, you know, like Gemstack. And even also it plugs seamlessly into the blockchain ecosystem as sort of an additional bonus there. So it is a very future-proof oriented kind of authentication for developers. Do I understand your, your overall, the through line in your products, is it this ambient focus on developer experience? Yes, like everything we do, it's developer focused. We want developer experience to be uh, top notch. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So, of all the things you could focus on, why is passwordless authentication a meaningful product? Mm-hmm. Well, in my opinion, passwords are already quite obsolete. <laughs> so, about you know, like there's so many breaches these days. You know, like. Recently, there's, you know, the Facebook hack and there's, there's hack recently that demanded ransom in Bitcoin. <laughs> um, so, so basically, it's a huge problem because a lot of people reuse their passwords. So about 59% of all recorded users reuse their password across different services. And, you know, sometimes I find myself to, <laughs> to reuse some passwords too for like one-off services. And imagine what happens when hackers crack these companies expose the encrypted passwords and sort of figure out the the username to password hashes, right? And kind of reuse that to 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 log in and impersonate as users. So right now, I think for people with like simpler passwords, if you go to haveibeenpwned.com, type in your email, you're going to see all the services that uh, have, have been compromised and has leaked out your, your information. Isn't the solution to this to store all my passwords in the Chrome password manager? <laughs> um, well, that's that's sort of, you know, I, I would say the problem is all the passwords are, it's not about where you store it. It's more about what password you're using, right? So let's say if you use the same password, uh, another, let's say in app A and then app B, another a hacker can just take the same password and log in as you using the same password, even if your password is being secured in the Chrome, in a Chrome browser. All right. So shouldn't my best practice be to generate entirely new passwords for every account using Google and store it in Google? Yeah. Yeah. So right now, I think that's as close as to the mainstream solution, you know, which in this case, it's like, it's like, oh, hey, like, by the way, as an end user, you are responsible for your own security hygiene. You know, when companies can just prevent uh, this issue from scratch, right, uh, in the, from happening in the first place by not offering password-based authentication. So because in this case, the companies are still storing these passwords, right? So, yeah, like a lot of users, you know, more security-sensitive users will generate password, but a majority of Internet users do not do that and do not want to deal with extra tooling around security, 
the most ideal way to enforce security is for security to be invisible to the user instead of a user have to like do like a nuclear launch code every time they access an application, right? So what we do here is sort of leveling up the base bar for security by not even letting use like deferring the responsibility to the users, but giving developers the tools to build passwordless in the first place, right? In, in, so, so that users will not have to do that. So if I'm building a food delivery app that's going to be used by people of all levels of technical skill, it's catering to the average consumer. Mm-hmm. I want to provide the most seamless password usage and recovery experience that also covers security as possible. Security, you know, if I'm just trying to get my app off the ground, I'm probably not going to care that much about security up front. I'm probably not going to go with the most secure solutions up front. I'm building Instacart from day one. I've got enough problems. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not going to use magic, right? Well, that's why magic exists, actually, because companies don't want to build authentication themselves. Like every app needs authentication. And, you know, if a company ends up getting hacked, that's pretty bad. Over 40% of customers never comes back. Um, there's also going to be liabilities around the damage caused by breaches. There's also, you know, necessary work around security compliance and privacy compliance and also ensuring that your login system works reliably and scale, right? And, and would scale with your own growth. So, you know, as someone building, let's say, like POC for a new Instacart, they don't want to think about all this stuff, right? But you need authentication for users to interact with your app in the first place. So why not pick a solution that's really, really easy to use and give you that peace of mind to, to basically worry about what's core to your business rather than authentication. So are you an authentication company? Um, yeah, uh, we are authentic. Right now, we're very focused on authentication side of things. Do you compete with Auth0? Well, the space has so much surface area, right? I don't, I don't think we're a direct competitor. Uh, a lot of people in the authentication space, you know, does a lot of things, right? And for us, we want to do, you know, basically the developer-friendly sort of customer identity side really, really well. Whereas, you know, Auth0 and Okta does a lot like workspace uh, identity. Have you, have you worked with Auth0 before? Have you used it? I used it. I used it myself. I think as a company that provides, you know, so much functionality, I I do believe that their content is quite good. How, if we're imagining the listenership is somewhat familiar with Auth0, okay, short history of Auth0, it's developer-friendly authentication Mm -hmm. as a service, kind of the next generation of Okta, which is why Okta acquired them. How are you differentiating the product direction from Auth0? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, Magic is a lot about being future-proof, right? So a lot of these, so let's just make an example here. So, you know, the old guards uh, in identity would be like Microsoft, Oracle, IBM, all these companies. And you have these new, newer companies like Okta, Auth0, you know, Ping.com, OneLogin. These companies are trying to shift the market into the next generation identity applications. But these applications, a lot of it are still based on technology that's decades old. 
Whereas, you know, now a lot of things are happening around us, you know, like decentralized identity, blockchain, further decentralizing sort of essential infrastructure for the internet. And all of that depends on PKI, so public key infrastructure. So without proper key management, you know, the older providers of identity will, no, will not be able to plug seamless, seamlessly into the more future-proof ecosystems, right? It, you know, like blockchain decentralized infrastructure. But magic, you know, coming from the crypto and blockchain ethos, we do a really good job in terms of uh, managing the private keys, right? So, so with that in mind, you know, magic is going to be the one after Octa Auth0. So we're sort of establishing our own category as sort of this future-proof, super, super developer-friendly and really compatible with modern tech stack uh, sort of authentication solution. If we think more expansively about this from the blockchain-inclusive world of software, Auth0 is proof of authority. Mm -hmm. You want to be proof of what? Well, basically, for what we do is we manage the, the private keys, right? So, or we sort of help user manage the private keys. And what that allows is that, let's say if a user wants to take hold of their identity, they can export the keys, right? So this way, the user is not vendor locked in to Auth0. They can take their identity out, move it somewhere else. It's going to be, you know, hyper-portable. And... You know, our goal is to eventually sort of, you know, the vision is to be the passport of the internet, right? So, you know, instead of just solving this for one-off companies that need a quick authentication solution, we want Magic Solution to be future-proof, to be scalable, to be very, very sustainable, rather than sort of this aggregation of huge amount of identity and expose ourselves as sort of this this honeypot. We want to be able to decentralize a lot of the things that we've been working on, you know, how we manage keys, how we do identity, how we work with technologies like even IPFS to, you know, potentially even store user uh, data in decentralized infrastructure rather than sort of in our centralized warehouses. So you are going after one of the biggest outstanding problems in the crypto space. If you go to a crypto conference and you poll the audience what startup in crypto they're working on, 5% of them will answer, I'm working on decentralized identity. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you the person who can solve decentralized identity? Yeah. Well, you can't have identity without key management. So because to store this identity anywhere is really just data, right? Like what kind, what format is the data? And where do you store it? Do you store it on IPFS? Do you, you know, it, it depends on what technology to use. But the more urgent problem at hand is nobody can really use crypto applications <laughs> because you need to download the browser extension to use it or some other app, like a wallet app on your phone before you can even interact with the application itself. So there's a lot of barrier of entry for any user to interact with the more decentralized with more decentralized applications. So what magic helps is that we are the alternative to MetaMask, which is like a popular browser extension that is very, very appealing to the mainstream user because we make the whole blockchain experience invisible. 
you can just log in with your email, click magic link, and boom, you're logged in, um, automatically hooked up with a crypto key pair, right? So, so we make it super, super easy. And even if we don't end up owning the identity standard, we'll be the enablers for many of these identity formats to reach mainstream, right? Because, you know, we're right now uh, securing the identity of, you know, over millions of users. And that is actually growing about um, 5 to 6% a week, right? So it's actually growing really, really quickly. And all of these users are now on a decentralized form of identity, whether they don't know it now or not. The way I always describe MetaMask is that it is the jQuery of the crypto ecosystem. Yeah. Everybody uses it. Nobody really wants to be using it to the extent that they're using it. People, you still want to use jQuery today sometimes. Right. <laughs> For like a quick hack. <laughs> For a quick hack. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty much what MetaMask should be. It should be this transient place to store a little money to so that you can engage with application. Just like you store 80 bucks in your wallet. But I have spoken with people and I, and I ask them, hey, what crypto do you hold? And they'll say, oh, I owe this and that and this, that prime and, you know, yeah. you know Elon, come rocket, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I say, where do you actually buy this stuff? Mm-hmm. And where do you keep it? And they say, I keep it all in MetaMask. Are you insane? <laughs> You're keeping 20% of your net worth in your browser. You're nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's... You know, there there could be like phishing scams. You know, it's it's really, it is a reasonable solution for what it is. But you know, it's it's really hard to use. Um, it's limit. You know, only about ten percent users can actually convert right through that through the onboarding experience. And also, it is still tied with let's say, the the Chrome you know store, right? So there's um, likely going to be a lot of like phishing scams, and there's malicious applications that sort of trick the users into sending, like, you know, a a bad transaction, right? We are maybe a decade beyond the days where you had to be afraid of what to click on the internet because you thought it would download something that would force you to reinstall your operating system. Oh, that's, yeah. And now (laughs) we're storing 20% of our net worth in that same platform. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Probably not a good idea. Not a not a good idea, and we need to really start to think about like how the keys are managed, which is like the blockchain space. It's super distracting, you know. There's a lot of crazy price movements. There's like insane projects coming out. You know, a lot of people is only looking at one layer of the problem, and they sort of just assume the key management is what it needs to be now, but. It's nowhere near ideal in terms of how keys are management managed these days. So I think as a fundamental issue that, you know, Magic aims to address too, um, not only for like blockchain apps, but also for, you know, Web 2.0, more mainstream type of applications that would eventually benefit from a more decentralized form of identity. If I look at your product evolution, I think you were asking the question, what is MetaMask? And how can I make a better version of whatever that is? Mm-hmm. Your first crack at that was Fortmatic. Mm-hmm. It looks like you realized that you could focus on actually a subset of what you were trying to do with Fortmatic and have a more focused and 
directional business. Yeah, that's that's right. And 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 for Matic was like V zero, right, of this exploration. It was really clear that a lot of users and developers were frustrated with a more traditional browser extension uh, experience. So there's a lot of frustration that I picked up <laughs> when I was, you know, in the space during 2017. And then uh, in 2018, I decided to start Fortmatic to basically, you know, surgically tackle these problems, right, for users and developers and sort of boost the conversion rate for blockchain uh, applications specifically. And, you know, after a year, a year and a half in operation, we've onboarded about 30% of decentralized apps uh, back then in all of Ethereum. So, so that was kind of a revelation that, hey, maybe like, the Ethereum space is still growing, right? It's not, it's not going to be super viable if that's all, you know, we focused on. You know, there's new ecosystems pop- popping up, up, you know, other blockchain platforms and also sort of passwordless authentication, which is sort of a natural transition from Fortmatic because essentially what Fortmatic was is authentication plus key management. <laughs> it's just packaged as a crypto a specific solution. But, you know, if we packaged it as magic uh, and make it more appealing to the mainstream developer audience, then, you know, magic would be kind of seamlessly be the next generation from the old Fortmatic product, right? So so it, it it was kind of born naturally to sort of make the product simpler and more viable for more developers because the end goal is, we want to bridge the gap between the mainstream users and developers now with technology that is really good and sustainable for the future, right? In this case, decentralized identity and key management as a form of authentication. Side note, mm-hmm. what do you think Coinbase's direction for authentication is? I would say Coinbase's direction would be sort of Maybe login with Coinbase, you know, similar to how you can do login with coin uh, with Facebook, right? You can do login with Coinbase, and maybe you can grant permissions to these applications in terms of like crypto transactions and crypto signatures and different kind of actions in the blockchain ecosystem. So I think that's that would make sense for Coinbase, but so will many other applications. You know, Binance could do it. So it would be the would be, it would make sense for I say a wallet to provide, you know, login with Coinbase, login with Binance, sort of like as an OAuth provider. Nobody's going to use a Binance wallet. <laughs> well, only if they're holders of tokens that's that's listed on Binance. Oh, oh. <laughs> only, okay, right. Yeah. So BNB. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> BNB users, maybe. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So is the does anybody win the digital wallet space or is it a multi-winner thing? I think... Winning is too early, right? So, so I would say, if you're looking at the, the the sort of decentralized technology timeline with the Coinbase IPO, I would mark that as sort of the Netscape moment of blockchain, right? It's and it would mark the beginning of this movement, but that's not the end, right? And we're sort of just starting, because Netscape, you know, nobody uses it now, right? But, you know, it's just to show that being the first is not always the winner of the space. And what ends up happening is, 
different companies will specialize in different things. Even if both company could be providing wallet services, it could be for very different audiences, right? One wallet provider can be more for like for like enterprise and institutional asset storage. You know, on one side, the wallet could be for regular、uh, users on the internet, right? That's not storing as much money into their account. So, I wouldn't say there's like a one size fits all solution, which is kind of the beauty for this space, right? It is very open and decentralized, and it actually encourages sort of like non-monopolic behaviors, you know, from companies, but rather encourages collaboration. Because it's very easy to work with another company if you are both built on the same blockchain, and in the future, even if it's on different blockchain,、uh, it would be really easy to work together too. What are the subjective decisions you can make in designing a wallet? Well, I would say security and UX—it's like a slider. <laughs> if you go for too good of a UX, then it's really easy to log in. But it introduces more single points of, of compromise, right? Let's say, but if if you move to the other side, then you may have like two or three steps before you can even interact with the wallet. You can have like multi-signature wallets. You can have, you know, social recovery and things like that. So, I would say like my take on this is. The ideal way to approach this is to start with the lowest common denominator, which is like in this case email, for more like Western societies,、uh, everybody uses email as like a、um, a verifier. But you know, China aside, China uses phone numbers more、uh, and WeChat. So, so I would say for sort of email based user base, you know, starting with email is like a good first lowest common denominator. And what we try to do is to make magic more extensible,、uh, kind of like Lego pieces for authentication and security. Based on your own desire, you know you can add two-factor authentication or add another social login mechanism to your application. So, you know those are the things, some of the next things that we're working on to extend beyond our basic, you know, authentication offering and add more composability in terms of、uh, in terms of like the end-user authentication. I think you're you're Chinese, right? Yeah. Okay. Are you are you from China or were you born here? I'm born in China. You're born in China.、Uh, how how much time did you spend there?、Uh, about twelve years. Twelve years. Okay.、Mm-hmm. And do you go back much? Uh, no, <laughs> no. I I used to go once a year, but since the to visit my parents since COVID, I haven't gotten a chance to go back. Okay. All right. But you but pre COVID, you went a fair bit. Yeah, like once every one year or two years. What's the Dynamic, the public dynamic of crypto. There, like, who, how many people are using? Are a lot of people using or crypto, or have has the government successfully cracked crack down on it? Is it kind of a fake crackdown where people still use it under the like under the covers? I wouldn't say people are necessarily using crypto,、um, but I would say a lot of people are talking about it and have bought Bitcoin. <laughs> so I could be biased because that's sort of like. I, I hear you know it, it's、uh, a means for getting money out of China. That's the line I hear all the time. You know, I wouldn't conclusively say that. You know, without like firm evidence, but you know, it would hypothetically make sense, right? <laughs> let's let's imagine like a very cons- conspiracy sort of scenario is, but you know, not factual, just 
going crazy, right? Doing a thought experiment. So let's say if you're an investor, you can invest in, in sort of the mining operations in China, and then the Bitcoin that's being mined gets transferred out of China, right? So in a way, there's money, there's RMB going in, but there's crypto coming out, right? So, so as long as the money is coming out and exiting the system, then effectively, you know, the money is now free, right, from, from China. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's kind of strange how, you know, there's a lot of conversation about banning crypto, but, you know, people still are able to buy it. And as you know, if China wants to ban something, <laughs> they would ban it. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, it is really interesting to watch because, you know, every time there has been a bull run, there's rumors and FUD around China wanting to ban crypto. <laughs> so it's happened many times already. But, you know, I, I, I do think that uh, it's, it may be a good thing to regulate it a little bit because, you know, there, there are a lot of like crazy scams on there. <laughs> so, so to protect people's investment, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a, good, a good idea sometimes to have more supervision. I don't think that's what China has in mind when they regulate crypto. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, if their intention is to ban it, I don't, I don't know. People still can buy it and, and own it these days. <laughs> when they do that, when they kind of do these fake bans, do you think they actually have the opposite effect where they make people kind of curious? Like, why <laughs> didn't they do this a year ago? Why, why hasn't it worked? You know? Yeah. I think people just think that and they start to wonder. Yeah, for sure. I notice this a lot, right? And, you know, this is, like, similar with, like, freedom of speech, too. <laughs> the more you want to ban something, the more people want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's, yeah, it's, it's very similar how the parallel is. The, the more you say, hey, don't look there, <laughs> people are going to look there because I think a lot of people are, are, are genuinely, genuinely very curious people and, and want to learn more about, yeah, about the world. How constrained do people actually feel in terms of expression of free speech in China? I'm not very familiar with that, but you know, like as as far as I know, you know, it is definitely a very curated experience. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's like less trolling, less vicious trolling compared to what we see on Twitter here. <laughs> you know, in a way it is kind of nice, but in an, another way that's kind of scary because, you know, people aren't really sharing as much as uh, so you just don't know what's in people's head because it's not okay to share certain things. Do you think that stifles innovation in the tech sector? Yeah, for sure. I think any kind of censorship sort of stifles uh, innovation, right? So, you know, I, I would say it's it's really up to, you know, the government and regulators to, you know, recognize these things and find the right balance for like startups and to, to innovate and be able to share their opinions. The product cycle these days seems to be that you have wild innovation in the West and then the Chinese can capture and refine whatever innovations the West creates in, in a way that 10 X's whatever <laughs> whatever was created in the, in the United States. And then the United States then <laughs> borrows from that. The scale, and yeah. reproductizes it. It's it's kind of a copacetic 
relationship, mm-hmm. but kind of horrifying at the same time because it's going really fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say it's definitely accelerating. You know, now there's so much innovation and data that's you know be, that's that's accumulating, right? And and there's definitely like a lot of really big areas of innovation. You know, like machine learning, AI. That's one part, but also I think blockchain and sort of new form of infrastructure that's coming up as well, right? Like China's rolling out their own digital di- digital currency. So, in, and, and yeah, there's like more talks about actually using blockchain as sort of a, you know, essential piece of infrastructure that allows you to program trust into whatever you do, right? Which was not really possible before, before the blockchain. Consumerization of crypto still extremely early days, right? When do we get beyond this primitive world where all we really do with crypto is like speculate, generate pixelated avatars, and then you have this like alternate DeFi universe where you have inscrutable technology (laughs) and insurance products that have no market. Mm Synthetic assets that nobody understands. Surely there's something in the middle of these two worlds. Yes. <laughs> so that's that's a very good question, right? And and with every technology, if the birth of every new sort of paradigm uh, in, in tech, it always kind of starts a bit like troll, you know? <laughs> so yeah. so the PC didn't have much functionalities, right, when it was first in, in, uh, introduced. You know, it's for kids to draw... <laughs> using like like paint, right? And then eventually there's more program that was being built for it as it matured. The internet too, uh, in the beginning, people just use it for like random, <laughs> random stuff and like message boards and all kinds of stuff, right? So I think with paradigm shifts like this, you always see a lot of noise in the beginning, right? And as the market consolidates and more uh, entrepreneurs enter the space and actually try to find real use cases, <laughs> um, you're, you're going to see sort of uh, a transition over more practical practical use cases, right? So I think you see a lot of games on crypto these days, right? So game is, you know, in, in many cases are the drivers of like new technology, uh, even for like the, the more like mainstream internet as we know today. So yeah, and also as... You know, we could we could see, you know, my ideal vision is that users don't have to know that it's backed by blockchain or cryptocurrency when they use a blockchain-based application. It's kind of like why we don't say that, hey, I use an app, a SQL app. <laughs> we just say we use an app, but the app could be using SQL, right? And, and I think the same is for blockchain. So we shouldn't be, so blockchain companies shouldn't just be blockchain companies, they're just companies and applications. And blockchain is sort of an implementation detail that they use to implement certain level of trust in their services. You know, like, like for example, one really cool idea you can possibly do with crypto is making new business models. Like, for example, imagine like WhatsApp, you know, one way, like a new WhatsApp with millions and millions of users to use WhatsApp each user can stake, let's say, $20 into their account, like 20 crypto, right? And then uh, what they can do, what this new WhatsApp can do is sort of accrue interest using decentralized finance 
with the deposit, and everything is transparent. There, you know, it's for people to verify. There's a lot of trust involved there. So then, WhatsApp, uh, this new WhatsApp can generate revenue based on the interest. They'll take a piece, and then actually they can also redistribute the interest back to the users. So by using WhatsApp, you you can actually make money <laughs> by using it, and the company would make money as well, and not have to be more exploitative and, and sort of sell people's information. So hypothetically, new business models like this could emerge from the ma- mature, the maturing like blockchain industry. Okay, that's a profound example. You got to give me a bigger example. Take take the take it to Amazon. Give me the Am- <laughs> give me the Amazon version. You gave me the WhatsApp version. I need to see the Amazon version. <laughs> the Amazon, I don't know. It's it's a bit it's a bit hard because Amazon touches both physical and and. and give me the AWS version. World. Yeah, so or maybe that, that's too much. Is that too much? Can you give me the Instacart version? I can I can try the AWS one because okay. I thought about it a bit. So you know, as as scalability in blockchain improves it would open us to more potential like i would say amazon competitors right right now the the problem with aws you know it's great it's it's you know it's it's good price you know for many companies but the issue is now you're relying everything on aws like the essential infrastructure of your application is tied to amazon right but that's sort of like privatized roads and you know and and basic uh, infrastructure needs that we have right so so AWS is sort of owning all of that like basically the essential infrastructure in the digital world and i think that's a huge risk right so with crypto you may be able to decentralize some of the infrastructure like for example Storage is what people look at a lot, right? So how do you store data decentralized in a decentralized way? Um, there's people who've, uh, who've been working on IPFS, right, as a technology to store files dis- in a decentralized way. Yeah, but way. can you spin this then, in a way where I'm making money off of my storage? Yeah, so you can sort of... So I would recommend taking a look at Filecoin, uh, which is a pretty cool example. But, but basically, uh, imagine a situation where you can run a program and... You can provide your uh, data storage. You can stake a node, right, with some coin. And then basically, as long as you're providing this node service to let others store data on your servers, you can actually make money. Okay, that's making that's making money as as a host, though. It's That's not like the WhatsApp example where I can use this service and also uh-huh. <laughs> gain money from it. Yeah. Yeah, I would say because infrastructure is such an important piece of the internet, I think ideally they should be decentralized as much as it possibly can. All right, right. Yeah. Centralized, but I probably still have to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. It would be cheaper probably, you know, when more people provide the service. But, Got it. Okay, all right. Let's yeah. let's get let's get back to the present. So Magic, what's your user base like these days? Like what kind of apps are you using it? Do you have any flagship people mm-hmm. you can talk about? Yeah, so on the sort of mainstream application side, we have uh, User Voice, who's currently the uh, one of the customers of of Magic. So user voice is a, that's a like customer feedback tool. Yeah. Yeah. Customer feedback. So, you know, a lot of customers go to their site and provide feedback. So they would, they would like to improve the security and also make the authentication experience super slick. Right. So the users have like almost zero friction to signing up. Got it. So this is, so user voice is using it for all of their customer feedback integrations. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's pretty big. It's it's pretty good. <laughs> so that's like an infrastructure provider basically adopting your solution to use for all of their infrastructure customers. Right. That's powerful. Yeah. So a lot of our audience. How'd you get them to trust you? Well, I they kind of came into our website after we launched last year. And I just hopped on a call with them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we yeah, had had a good conversation with with uh, with Matt, who's the CEO there, and uh, yeah, they're willing to give it a shot. And you know, we built out several features for them over the months, and that's how we kind of build a relationship. And eventually, launched with them earlier this year. What was the vetting process like? How'd you get? I mean, you're essentially saying, "Hey, outsource the highest source or one of the <laughs> highest points of risk." Or a key point of security risk in your infrastructure. You're outsourcing your, your password reset to me. How do you convince somebody of that? Well, it's a balance, right? In fact, most companies don't want to deal with it themselves. <laughs> so people want to offload. There is a inherent drive to not manage authentication oneself, right? So, so there's a drive to, to outsource that. And if we sort of prove that it's really simple to integrate, it's really secure, and we have really, really good customer support, um, which is really important for for solutions like this. Uh, then if we check all the boxes, then you know um, we're just as competitive as other vendors. That's more like mature. In fact, I would say companies would actually prefer startups because they get better support, right? <laughs> what can you say about the implementation? It's super, super easy. And like I mentioned, it's we want it to feel like Lego. I don't mean how it feels. I mean how it actually works behind the scenes. To integrate the SDK, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how, what are you actually doing? Well, we do we do different things, right? It, yeah, I don't know how okay, deep so do you want to go. Yeah. I am logging in without my password. Give me the quick description of why I am doing this. What are the what's the actually use case? Like, have I lost my password? Is that what's going on here? Is it my first time logging in? What exactly are you talking about? What are you solving? And then how is that actually implemented on the back gotcha. end? Gotcha. Well, so if you look at so let's go now versus magic, right? So now what a lot of companies provide is email based login with passwords. Forgot your password. There's a forgot. Send your you password. an email. Mm-hmm. I click the email. I maybe get an SMS code also to do two fact two factor. Right. I put the SMS thing in and then I can reset my password. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so that's sort of the flow these days, right? But in the end, the security really lies uh, on your email or already with forget forget your password, right? Assuming there's no two factor um, that's added. So basically, the whole security of your system is reliant on that email recovery anyway. So why ask for the redundant password field and offer two different flows for users to sign up, right? So basically we're like, okay. So you see, you're, you're inherent in the status quo is that your email, subject to two-factor authentication, your email is a point along the critical path here. Yeah, so everything's dependent on the email. Even... If after you type in your password to log in, you still have to verify your email in many cases. So there's just way too many steps to even get started, right, with an application. So what you're saying is you could imagine a world where you log in without password, 
you could even still do the SMS mm-hmm. gate gateway, yep. but you just don't require this norm mm-hmm. of entering a password. And you basically say, okay, if you've verified that you have the rights to this email address, and you may or may not have verified your SMS, mm-hmm. we can log you in, and then we can cookie you or whatever, and know that you are safe. To, you've, you can log in from this device whenever you want, and you're not mm-hmm. going to have to go through this again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we, we don't provide that feature now, but because we are based on public-private key pairs, as long as you, you have your key, you'll be able to log in, even without email or SMS. Right. Um, or it could be really easy for us to provide some kind of a guest mode where you can just get started without sign up on your device and then eventually add permanence with your email and other sort of identifiers. OK, this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So. So, yeah, like we're we're basically working on what people would be able to imagine now. But... I mean, you have convinced me that there is a significant point of friction in almost every product I use. Mm-hmm. Yes unnecessary friction that's not even good for security at all <laughs> yeah it doesn't yeah. it's it's arguably bad for security right it's actively <laughs> bad for security yes yes yeah and collectively i think what the password industry feels like have been doing is hey user it's your responsibility it's yes. not our responsibility yes it's kind of like yeah taxes are hard to do <laughs> let's make it hard so we can <laughs> Let's keep but, it hard. But arguably, you know? that's the right posture, right? Because if you are seeding everything over to the email, which you point out, we're we're doing that whether we like it or not. But philosophically, we may be doing the wrong thing by by seeding. Like at least, at least the idea of the password yeah. represents that I'm in control. You know, actually, Google is in control because Google right. has your email. Uh-huh. Google controls your email. If you get taken off of Google, you might as well not exist. Right. You're saying it's time for us to admit that. If we want to do something about that side of things, we can do something about that side of things. That's not in your scope. Mm-hmm. We need to admit that. We need to admit that the email provider has control over your identity. Yes. And then I guess one thing you're kind of implying is that if you can create that acknowledgement that the email is the critical path of identity... You can make it clearer that, first of all, this is too much power mm-hmm. to be in a centralized entity. Mm-hmm. And second of all, there can be a refactoring or a reframing of how we do identity, and it may not actually have to be that painful. Yes, it, it'll be a really smooth transition <laughs> because the goal is to get users on, on key-based authentication. As long as the users on the key-based authentication you're sort of separate from these centralized providers already because all you need is the key, right, to authenticate. Um, in fact, it's actually very similar to username and passwords, right? As you know, PKI, public key infrastructure, is public and private keys, right? You keep the private key secure, and the public key is sort of your username kind of thing. So it's the same as username password, except it's better. It's generated by computers, but username and password is generated by the user, right? Which uh, is, is really prone to user errors and, and, and making like bad passwords. So the password is essentially an antiquated version of a private key, right? And the username is sort of your public identifier. So we're just doing the same thing, but with a different format <laughs> that's more improved uh, in terms of security. And we abstract away all the complexity using familiar uh, authentication methods like email and magic link. But the goal eventually, you know, like 
the dream is, you know, one-click login from a push notification on your device. And, you know, the challenge there would be sort of solving how do you recover like a lost device, right? So, so that's where it gets more fun. Yeah. Have, you, have you thought through that stuff yet? Well, well, there's, there's many, you know, I think about that every day. <laughs> I think, you know, figuring out how to effectively recover lost devices will be the future. And, you know, there's many ways that people are trying these days, like, you know, social recovery. Right. I can add like five friends and yeah. if three out of the five can can vouch for me, then, you know, I get my identity back. I think like WeChat used to do this. It's really cool. Sort of like recognizing which one of these are your friends, right, on your contact list. <laughs> so like they'll show like 10 people and you had to select all the people in your um, friend list kind of thing. So I remember seeing that like years ago. Maybe it's, uh, it's changed these days. Did you hear about how Vitalik maintains the keys for his cold wallet? <laughs> no, I have not heard about it. Oh, that. so you know the whole Shiba Inu coin <laughs> thing? Mm-hmm. How he got airdropped all these Shiba Inu coins and he his wealth like 10 x or something? His wealth 10 x from a billion to 10 billion or something? Something like something incredible like that during the crypto run-up recently. And... So he had he had this this wallet this cold wallet that everybody knew about everybody knew this wallet is his if you do ether ether scan or whatever the tool is uh, so okay this this wallet is worth billions but it's mostly Shiba Inu coin which is obviously going to crash so he wanted to donate it he wanted to donate most of that wealth liquidate it as soon as possible so he's under this like time pressure and he's trying to figure out how to talk, he talked through this, his method of wallet security was he had, I think it was, if I remember this correctly, he had a sheet of paper with one number, one really long number. His family had a sheet of paper with another really long number. If you add these two numbers together, that's his private key, mm-hmm. I think. I think that was that was what it was. That, um, that would make sense. It's you know, a lot of the space want like does multi signature. So, and so by the way, he he what he did was he he bought a new computer, mm-hmm. in or and then he bought a new computer, bought a new phone, called his parents for the number, mm-hmm. had them read the number over the phone, added the two numbers together, mm-hmm. logged into his wallet on the new computer, and <laughs> transferred the funds. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So that's where we're at today. Can <laughs> yeah, you, it, can you do better than that for identity? Um, Maybe a little better for decentralized identity, please. Yeah, that you know, I think I think there's many like sort of I would say more innovative approaches to like managing key where I don't know if that's what he did too, but there's sort of this multi-signature. Uh, they call it multi-party. Yeah, he said computer. there was actually more details that he yeah. couldn't talk about. Yeah, you know, it it's probably that, but you know, you can basically generate a wallet signature, uh, a transaction signature, without actually having a private key. And that's really cool. So this is like really new stuff that I think people have been looking at it, but it's only more popular since like late 2019. So what you can do is actually you can send the same payload, same transaction to multiple nodes, right? Multiple computers in this case, and have that have them sign a signature and then get all of the signatures back. And if you have 
like a majority of of the signature, then you can regenerate the actual transaction as if you have the private key. So, so in this model, you never have the private key to even begin with. You know, that's um, I think I think that'd be really really cool. That's that's really similar to distributed systems research that was done, you know, the last 20, 20, probably 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but it's, that's a reimagining of it applied to this application. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really exciting how there's, you know, so many paradigm shifts that's just happening in terms of infrastructure, right? Um, and only because of crypto and blockchain, you know, obviously a lot of noise here, but, you know, a lot of money and a lot of energy is being poured into this technology, so that now we're seeing more and more ap- actual applications of this technology that maybe were maybe appeared you know decades ago. It's only seeing the light of uh, light of the day. If you want to actually decentralize identity in a seamless way, do you ultimately have to do a federated proof of authority thing? Do I have to say, okay, I want to set up a decentralized identity system? Where ultimately, if I want it to be seamless, I have to. I could. I could issue a coin, and I give uh, you know twenty percent of the coin to Amazon, twenty percent to Google, twenty percent to Stripe, twenty percent to Facebook, twenty percent to Microsoft, mm-hmm. and I trust them to operate a semi-decentralized blockchain for fe- for federated decentralized identity. Do I have to do that, or is there a way to do it that's like? Bitcoin level decentralization? Well, I would say, you know, like if I were to select the parties, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sample uh, all the big tech, you know, you kind of mix and match a little bit, but 20% is controlled by Barack Obama. (laughs) Barack Obama. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I think that's at least better than what we have today. Right. So I would say that's sort of intermediary step that's necessary to improve our current situation. And as technology improves, then we can look into, you know, what we can do to like fully decentralize it. But, you know, the issue with full decentralization is performance. So yeah, basically the more decentralized something is, it's very likely that it's slower, right? So that's so why, let's say to optimize performance, then there's change that's like proof of authority, mm. right? And then that can go like a layer down to Ethereum, right? But on its own, it's much, much faster. So yeah, we're, we're, we're seeing more of this. And I mentioned before about being able to program trust using blockchain. It's the decision between how decentralized you want something to be, right? And, and based on that, you can, choose different, you can choose different blockchains or different blockchain-related technology in your app to communicate different levels of trust. So yeah, like, like now we have a path there to decide, hey, if you want full decentralization, maybe you should use Bitcoin, right, or Ethereum. But let's say if you want a reasonable level of decentralization and performance is really, really important for your application, then you can use like a layer two solution, right? Like maybe a Polygon or, or, or a Scale or some other new layer two solutions out there. How decentralized are those layer two solutions? Uh, centralized. How how decentralized are they? I haven't, you know, my co-founder, someone who, <laughs> who who's more knowledgeable there, but my guess is not very. It's not as decentralized as the main chain, right? But 
a lot of these companies have really innovative ways to right. ensure that that is reasonably decentralized, right? That's why like making the right layer two yeah. solution is really really hard, right? So, I mean, this is we know where this is going. The layer two solution is fast and untrustworthy. The layer one solution is slow and trustworthy. So, you route all your authentication through layer two, and you verify it later on layer one, just like have I been pwned is sort of like the, sorry, we can't let you know you've been pwned in real time, but we'll at least let you know that you've been pwned a year after you were pwned. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of, um, it's kind of like the black box in the airplane, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Mm-hmm. Which can actually be okay because if you, let's say there's a, let's say there's a SLA of a day. Mm-hmm. You got an SLA of a day knowing if your identity has has been has been stolen from you. Yeah. If you're operating on today's banking infrastructure, you've got a pretty big window to recover transactions through the traditional right. banking system. Mm-hmm. Amazon's going to refund you for a day's worth of stuff. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's like a step forward, right? And you know, as someone with sort of a design background, like I would prefer things to be more like forgiveness oriented rather than prevention uh, oriented, right? So instead of like I got to do 50 different things to make sure that I can do something, I'd rather be able to undo, right? It sort of have, you know, more forgiveness afterwards. Um, and I think blockchain does a really good job with that, right? Like forensics and being able to uh, have transparency into what actually happened. And the immutable nature makes it a really good audit log, actually. Um, so, so it doesn't have to be fully decentralized for some use cases. You could actually just have multiple parties, like five to ten nodes, that host like an audit log, right? So to make sure that there's some level of trust over the audit log instead of just one company uh, storing it in a database. This is sort of the design of ripple right that's like what ripple did it's kind of what facebook libra did Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think it's just different blockchains for different use cases right it's not that yeah obviously if obviously if there is the fully fully decentralized blockchain with super fast performance that will win for sure right but it just seems like that you know there's going to be compromises based on what your needs are so today you're a fully centralized system right Yeah, so the authentication side, yeah. Okay, got it. And I guess the most sensitive piece of infrastructure is that you're basically hosting private keys of everybody who's logging in through Magic. So so this is sort of the the infrastructure that we used from Fortmatic. So we actually have a patent around this. It's called Delegated Key Management. So we're able to manage private keys without actually seeing the private key itself. So all of these private keys are generated. Do you directly. use zk snarks? Oh uh, no, we we don't use zk snarks. Okay. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no worries. So yeah, we generate these key pairs in the user's browser. We don't generate it in our system. So in any part of the flow, we never see the private key, right? So then the private key is sent through Amazon Cognito directly to Amazon's KMS, which is like their hardware. The, their hardware security module. So yeah, like, and then that encrypted private key is sent back to the to the user, and we store a copy of the encrypted private key. 
not the actual private key. So what's cooler is we actually discovered this accidentally. Wait, sorry. Yeah. How does the client, the user's client, decrypt the encrypted private key? So it uses Amazon Cognito as a a middle layer to decrypt the private key. Okay, so they can hit... So they have the encrypted private key, and then they can hit Amazon Cognito to decrypt it. Yeah, the Cognito will give them access to the KMS, right? And then they can talk to the KMS directly to decrypt the keys. Got it. Okay, so you are delegating. You are effectively, you are effectively Heroku for Amazon Cognito. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. It's, nice one. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the sort of... Uh, you know how it is now. Uh, we do have plans to reduce the platform risk on just basing it on Amazon. Hey, man! I mean, but, you could you, you could know. pick a lot worse of a company to uh, manage your <laughs> platform risk, right? Because you know they do they do really well in terms of like securing those hardware security modules, right? So we don't want to run our own data centers and store these har- What's, hardware. Uh, so Heroku margins are great. What's the how how what kind of margins are we talking here? Can you share any of that? You know, honestly, like we don't <laughs> we don't have a really good idea on what that looks like now. Um, but uh, when we move off Amazon, it's going to be you know much better margins. I can I can right. say that. <laughs> right, right, right. Do you think you'll move off of Amazon directly to a blockchain solution? That's up in the air. That's up in the air, and I think it's really about what do we do in terms of. The replacement for Amazon Cognito and also the replacement for Amazon KMS, right? So the, their key management system. So like where do we find the hardware security modules? And, uh, you know, there's... And a, more importantly, it wouldn't be delegated then. If you actually had your own security module, you have to delegate it to somebody, right? You're, if you, in order to maintain what you're trying to do, you have to have somebody else. Yes. Like... Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be one party. It could be many Oh, parties. Interesting. Right? So, so yeah, I think that would also help with the price and further decentralization and de-risking the platform. Now, let's so so interesting. So, if let's say Google had com- comparable services, would you would you route the entire path of the key to de- to so that it's hidden from? Can you route it such, such that it's hidden from Amazon and Google and? And use both of them, or would you use, like, would you? How would you use that if you had an additional provider, or well, would that serve any purpose? Well, if there's a if there's multiple providers, then you can do something more around like distributed key generations, right? So, so you don't have to generate the keys on one node; you can generate it on multiple nodes, right? So you don't you don't have to generate a private key and send it to 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 Amazon or Google directly. You can send a piece of it, right? So, so then when you are orchestrating the reconstruction of the keys, you can sort of um, use different nodes. So um, nobody ends up with the complete key except the client. Yes, yeah, that's the that's the dream. <laughs> mm, powerful. Okay, so if you did that with two cloud providers, you've proved the base case of mm-hmm. doing that across a population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. You can even make it better. Like every time you use the key, you could refresh the keys on each of these nodes too. So basically, let's say even if Google, if one party gets hacked, then you know it will be irrelevant after a while because the keys 
that's being part of the key that's being stored is rotating all the time, right? So, so even if a hacker, let's say, grabbed um, the stolen uh, shares of the key, then um, there's there's also a chance that they would not be valid, right? By the time they do something with it. So yeah, it it just you know yeah. Thinking about this makes me really excited because if we just solve the key management really, really well, then you know the applications will be endless, right? So, um, and, and if you combine that with some sort of more like continuous um, authentication that gets more secure the more you use it, that's going to be sort of the ultimate solution here. Switching up the conversation a little bit, you we've just lived through this this pandemic you're working on a really innovative product you've got how many people is in your company at this point uh, we're, we're close to 30 now 30 yeah are them uh, how many are engineering about 12 12 people are engineering 12 engineering mm-hmm. and then what were the what were the other 18 people doing um we have marketing we have developer advocates we have customer success people uh product people designers got it how much did you grow during the pandemic? How many people did you grow by? I would say during the pandemic, we went from, let's, around 11, I would say. Okay, 11, 11 to, 30. to 30. Yeah. How has the pandemic been across your workforce? How have people dealt with it? How have you dealt with it as a leader? Yeah, I think um, not being able to <laughs> go out and, and meet people definitely... You know, it is it is challenging because when you're home alone and you're dealing with a lot of stress, you have to really like think about <laughs> your your life more holistically. <laughs> so so I feel like you know, for me personally, it's it's a very good like growth period. You know, I was more focused on my own mental health and physical health, and trying to be more connected with people. You know, I was I was like very very introverted before <laughs> the pandemic. You know, now I'm much much better. And I'm. I actually feel like I want to uh, connect and, and socialize with people more. And I would say a lot of the team experienced this too, right? Them, themselves. And uh, you know, for the team, it really helped us grow in a way to be, you know, better communicators and more proactive communicators because you have to <laughs> in a remote environment. And yeah, and be more authentic and, and transparent about. Uh, the things that we're discussing. I would say it it sucks for sure <laughs> during the pandemic, but I think I think overall a lot of us got a lot out of it, you know. So there's this breakdown of norms that occurred during the pandemic. First it's we're all going to work remotely forever now or we have the choice to. Then there was are you going to wear a mask? Are you not going to wear a mask? Right. There were a bunch of these kinds of things that kind of got politicized. People say the word politicized, but it's more like we all just had a bunch of identity crises happen at the same time. Should you have people over? Can you have a barbecue? Can you have a barbecue if it's outside? Like even today, can you have dinner parties? Can you have a 200-person outdoor party? Can you – there's a sign in my elevator in my building and the elevator says you're not required to to wear a mask but it's neighborly what does that mean does that mean you are a bad citizen in our apartment if you do not wear a mask 
you know, does that mean that there is a there's a social norm expected to wear a mask in in the and and I'm not making a commentary on mask or no mask. We have a public identity crisis. We have a breakdown of social norms. Has that affected you? Actually, I've been pretty secluded. Pretty secluded. <laughs> Actually, this is the first time I do. I do you heard agree with that. me on that, though? Yeah, I would say you know lean into science. <laughs> you know, like if if let's say there's a there's really good evidence that like most people, like eighty percent people, got vaccinated in 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 San Francisco, then maybe we should lean into you know sort of getting back to where we were, right? So. You know, that's that's sort of like my personal opinion. But what what if I see a hyperlink with a scientist that says we've got vaccine resistant variants on their way? <laughs> that you know, we'll have to know. Or there's a fifty percent chance that we have vaccine resistant variants on the way. It's like I'm doing. I have this like. It's like I've, it's like in my head I'm like writing numbers on a chalkboard and like the chalkboard's gotten too like it's filled with all these numbers and these calculations and these probabilities and I can no longer come to a conclusion of the expected value of wearing a mask. Uh-huh. Okay, it it you know, I get it, it makes me a little bit incrementally safer, but it restricts my ability to have human to human casual interaction with the people I bump into in the building. Is that cost worth the benefit of being slightly healthier? I don't know. I'm trying to do the calculation. I can't do the calculation. And now I'm a pariah to society. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't really go to a lot of crowded <laughs> areas, so um, I think. But with your newly discovered extroversion, you're going to have to. Not like crazy a lot of people, like I think 30 people, you know, that's like a reasonable amount. <laughs> but, you know, if the company gets bigger, then obviously we'll, we'll have to have a separate <laughs> conversation there to decide, like, what's the ma- mask situation like. Um, but I find, you know, the bigger part of the problem is, you know, just there's there's a lot of like information out there, and some are true, some are misinformation. So it's like really hard to know, you know, what the actual percentage look like, and and also, you know, this, you know, this situation is kind of kind of new to 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 a lot of us. That's an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so I think you know I have faith in people figuring it out as as we go. You know, and and I think, yeah, being more open-minded and uh, do more research on the things that we're reading. And, uh, you know, it's always, it's good to be more cautious, in my opinion, too. In any situation where it's like, okay, I'm not sure, then, then maybe mask is a good idea. But let's say if it's like with people I know, with a smaller group, then maybe we can like relax that a little bit. Um, so... So yeah, I think yeah, it's very flexible. There's no like one or the other, right? Um, purely no mask or all everyone mask. It's it's flexible, um, you know, because we're people and situations are dynamic from person to person. So I think instead of like needing like one authority to say okay, what we should do here, maybe people should you know think more for um, themselves and sort of adapt to their own situation. Wrapping up, any reflections on product development? So I see you as a very sticky, persistent entrepreneur. You had Fortmatic, you pivoted. The pivot looks awesome. There are people who are going to be giving up before they find the thing to pivot to. Mm -hmm. 
how do you advise people? And probably sometimes you should give up. How, I mean, in my career, I've built products that were going nowhere. I gave up. Sometimes I regretted it. Sometimes I have really big regrets about giving up because I, I think in retrospect, oh, if I only would have done this move, I could have done a little bit better and maybe that would have worked. And, yeah. you know, because when you because you get really lost sometimes, right, with your product, and you're like, what the hell am I doing? I've been working for two years on this thing and it's terrible. And then other times you wake up in the morning, you know exactly what to do. You have you have the you have the week long vision, you have the year long vision, you have the minute to minute vision for what to be doing. So how do you like navigate those different states of mind and and keep yourself going? Yeah, I think um, you know a lot of people don't see the projects that haven't worked i'm sure you have yeah, a lot so, of them. i'm sure you have a big graveyard yeah like insane right um <laughs> just <laughs> so you know those are all the things i give up and you know uh, i just felt like it's maybe there's no founder product fit right i think that's also really really important so for me when i decided to work on forkmatic slash magic i felt like i have to work on something that i perceive as almost art <laughs> it's not necessarily okay, I need to make this company so that I can address this market and make money. You know, obviously, like, that's a standard, but that's sort of like a tiny piece of the equation. What I want to build is something that is inherently good and is sustainable in the long run, right? Let's say if magic worked out with decentralized, with decentralized identity, then the whole, the whole internet would benefit from that, right? To me, working on projects like this gets me really excited every day. Uh, it's a huge and extremely difficult <laughs> endeavor, but it gives me the energy. And, you know, even even if, let's say, for any situation it doesn't work out, there's no regret because I tried the biggest thing that I could do. And also there's sort of a... And also there's a sort of, like, founder uh, product fit too here. Like, in terms of making good developer experience, it's really difficult to compete with, you know, like like our team's intuition, right? So, so I think we'll be able to build a following of developers and really kind of push this product and vision forward that actually is sustainable for the future rather than at some point we'll have to be more like exploitative, right? <laughs> so yeah, I think that gets me excited and almost approach it as like an art project that, that spans multiple years, right? Instead of, okay, like, let's cash out quick here. You know, I, I don't want to do that. If I wanted to do that, I would have launched a token, um, like, way earlier. It's never too late. <laughs> yeah, people I, I, have see, been asking. I see the long con. <laughs> I see the long con. You're just waiting a little bit longer for the token. Well, you need, you need the network, right, before any kind of token. I don't want to do the thing where I launch a token where it just wouldn't, makes sense yeah just to raise money i right? mean yeah i think you should do it i think eventually i hope you do a token or something like to token like that's mm -hmm. that would be awesome i think the token token driven economics are so powerful for for a business like what you're building yeah i think you know when we get to a place where you know where i'm satisfied with the decentralization that we're providing then it would make sense right but you know, right now we're very focused on the developer platform. Make sure that Magic is giving our customers what they need. And, you know, on the side, do research and improvement on the existing infrastructure, 
continuously to eventually get to that place where we have a decentralized identity. It doesn't happen. It's not, you know, Rome's not built overnight. So this is, you know, kind of our path forward. And it's the same with, with Docker, you know, like a lot of effort goes into the open source side. So for us, the open source is the research and improvement on decentralization. Uh, and then around that, we have the company, right? So say so as we grow and Magic is successful, then automatically it will be providing the more open and decentralized and more sustainable infrastructure for, for uh, identity. Sean, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff. Great talking. Yeah.